0: Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us on another Pivotal Jobs Friday in America. Just moments ago, the U.S. released what can only be described as stunningly strong employment data for the month of July. Numbers that should further ease concern or perhaps even erase concern that the United States is headed for imminent recession. The U.S. adding 528,000 jobs net last month. That's more than double expectations, with big gains in sectors like leisure and hospitality and in the healthcare sector. Also notable, the U.S. unemployment rate, which has finally fallen to pre-pandemic levels. The jobless rate now standing at 3.5%. Here's the reaction. U.S. futures firmly lower. As investors fear, the Federal Reserve will now be forced to tighten rates further again. Markets now expecting another three-quarters of a percent rate hike at the meeting next month. The Fed, of course, trying to curb economic growth to help bring down inflation. And this report shows economic growth still remains very strong, at least as far as the labor market and hiring is concerned. All right, let's get more of this in our drivers. Rahel Solomon joins me now. Rahel, the only word I can use here is, Wow.
1: That was my reaction. And to add to that reaction, Jason Furman uh, just tweeted uncomfortably hot job report." This is a, a really interesting time that we're all living through, Julia, because uh, any other time you see a job report like this, and it really just sort of spells a really strong economy, really red hot labor market. But in an environment where inflation is at nine point one percent, according to the latest last reading, well, it sort of adds an asterisk to that jobs report, right? So, yes, as you pointed out, this was twice what economists were expecting. We were actually expecting to see some cooling in the labor market. Not seeing that. When we look at sort of where the jobs were, uh, it was widespread. As you pointed out, leisure and hospitality, Julia, adding 96,000 jobs in the month of July. Professional and business services, 89,000. I think we can pull it up for you. Healthcare, 70,000. And government, 57,000 jobs. So, The complicating factor about all of this is the demand for workers and wages. Right now, Julia, there are 1.8 open jobs for every one person looking. When you have that kind of imbalance, it creates upward pressure on wages, right? I mean, just think about it. Companies have to incentivize people to work for them because there is such demand for workers. And so they raise wages to try to incentivize workers. And while that is great for American workers, Well, first of all, that's being outpaced by inflation, but that then trickles down into higher prices and it creates a vicious cycle and it makes the job of the Fed trying to fight inflation much harder. And I should point out, Julia, that inflation is so problematic that even with these wage gains we're seeing, with the exception of just two industries, leisure and hospitality and retail, Every other sector is out, is being outpaced by inflation. And that's the problem. So what does this mean for the Fed? Well, it means that we'll probably see another rate hike of three quarters of a percent in September. But it also means that the U.S. economy, at least the labor market, is still red hot, not showing signs of slowing down.
0: Yeah, it's important to listen to the signals because I always remind myself that 99% of the employment in the United States is small and medium-sized businesses. So we listen to the signals that we get from those that have the loudest voices and the biggest megaphones, which is tech tech companies, which we know are sort of looking at slowing down the pace of hiring, but for small businesses here at least um, – Gangbusters. There you go. That's another word. Inexplicable. Um, <laughs> wow. Rahel.
1: Gangbuster. Red hot. Yeah. Uncomfortably red hot. Yeah, exactly. So many People ways to describe this
0: report. <laughs> yeah. Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. OK, China flexing its military muscle and political muscle, too. Suspending cooperation with the United States on a range of issues, including climate. It comes as Taipei reports fighter jets and warships in the Taiwan Strait. This, of course, all following U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island earlier this week. She's now in Tokyo for talks with the Japanese Prime Minister. Selina Wang joins us now. The military drills, of course, continue. But now the response in terms of not only sanctions, direct sanctions, of course, on Nancy Pelosi, which you can talk to us about, but on something, one of the few areas where the United States and China were still trying to cooperate on tackling climate change.
2: As a result of this, we are seeing U.S.-China relations, Julia, sink to new lows mm-hmm. as if they couldn't get any worse. China has announced that they are suspending bilateral talks with the U.S. on a whole wide range of issues. This includes topics including illegal immigration, anti-drugs. This includes on military discussions and also, most importantly, as you say, on climate change. This was one of the few areas where there were still ongoing dialogue between the two countries despite the ongoing tensions. And this is bad news for the whole world. These are the two world's largest contributors to climate change, and they need to have these discussions. But as a result of the fallout from this Pelosi visit, they are not. China has also said it's sanctioning Nancy Pelosi and her immediate family over what they are calling this provocative, reckless act that is challenging China's sovereignty. They have not released details on that, but it is a major symbolic move. This, of course, comes on top of all of the military escalations from China. We've just learned, according to Taiwan, that they have flown a record number of warplanes into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. This is the airspace around Taiwan while China frequently flies warplanes in there. Today, we learned there were 68 in a day.
0: That is a record number, Julia. Yeah. Sina Wang in Beijing. Thank you for keeping on top of that for us there. Now, Russian President Putin hosting Turkey's President Erdogan this hour as the two leaders meet for the second time in less than three weeks. The summit in Sochi comes after Turkey helped broker a deal to restart grain shipments from Ukraine. The Kremlin says they will discuss the deal, as well as trade ties and potential energy projects. Nader Bashir joins us now from Istanbul. Um, The fact that these two leaders have met twice in just under three weeks, I think it's important. It's also setting off alarm bells that perhaps the Kremlin is looking to strengthen economic ties with Turkey, of course, a NATO nation, particularly in the energy sector. And I think the risk is here that perhaps it will provide Russia with the opportunity to disguise the origin of these oil exports as the EU crackdown on, on oil imports finally kicks in next year. Nado, it's a valid worry. Absolutely, Julia. That is expected to be a key
3: focus of these talks now between President Putin and President Erdogan. As you highlighted there, we have seen them maintaining that dialogue that communication quite frequently now over the last few weeks and months. We just heard, just ahead of those closed-door talks between the two leaders, President Putin making uh, a few brief remarks saying that he hopes this meeting uh, will allow the two leaders to establish some sort of agreement to strengthen those economic ties between the two nations, focusing uh, on various aspects of uh, uh, economic relations but as you said they in particular uh, on energy cooperation but also of course this is the first meeting between the two leaders since we've seen the Black Sea Grain initiative being put into practice and that uh, was something that President Putin was careful to mention he thanked President Erdogan for his work in mediating uh, that agreement and this really has been seen by President Erdogan and the Turkish government as a bit of a diplomatic win for Turkey we've already seen uh, one ship the only that first shipment of grain from Ukraine Southern Black Sea port of Odessa, uh, successfully passing through that carefully identified safe corridor, passing its inspection here in Istanbul before making its way to Tripoli in Lebanon. Today, a further three ships departing from Ukraine's Southern Black Sea ports on their way to Istanbul for those inspections, carrying nearly 60,000 metric tons of grain. So this has been a significant development on that front. And of course, as you mentioned there, uh, Russia may now be looking to Turkey not only uh, to support them in mediating those sorts of resolutions, but also, now to strengthen those economic ties. Turkey, while being a NATO member, hasn't joined in imposing sanctions on Russia. Uh, So as Russia begins to feel uh, the bite of these Western sanctions, they may now be turning uh, to Turkey to uh, support them on that front. But this isn't uh, the only thing on the agenda today. There are a number of topics. And what is primarily on the agenda for President Erdogan, I have to say, is a focus on a potential incursion uh, in northern Syria. This would be the fourth incursion uh, by Turkish military in northern Syria since 2016, the most recent one we saw back in October 2019. President Erdogan, of course, his aim remains the same. He is looking to establish a safe zone, in his words, a buffer zone on Turkey's southern border, uh, ridding the region of uh, Kurdish allied militant groups that the Turkish government deems to be terrorist organizations. And a secondary goal to that, then allowing the movement of uh, Syrian refugees currently settled in Turkey voluntarily uh, to these parts. But of course, that incursion we saw in 2019 triggered widespread condemnation by the international community it is still a major goal for president erdogan and this is important because of course russia has significant stakes uh, in syria it still has a military presence in northern syria controls much of the airspace in that region we saw president erdogan attempting to really gain Putin's support back uh, just a few weeks ago, meeting with both President Erdogan uh, and meeting with President Putin and the Iranian counterpart, Ibrahim Raisi. The Kremlin thus far has said it doesn't support uh, the incursion. But of course, that will be a key topic today in those talks. President Erdogan trying to get the green light from Moscow uh, to push ahead with this incursion.
0: Julia. Yeah, I mean, there was so much in there and obviously so much to talk between them. I think the danger for Turkey on the uh, potential energy negotiations that I was talking about in the beginning is the risk of uh, triggering secondary sanctions on Turkey. So that's that's something to worry and certainly be concerned about as well. Um, But good to hear that more vessels have left Ukraine with that precious grain as well. So we'll continue to follow that, too, in addition to everything else. Thank you so much for that, Nada Bashir. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky hit back at Amnesty International on Thursday after the human rights group said Ukrainian forces endangered their own civilians by putting troops and equipment in residential areas. President Zelensky said the report is helping Russia get off the hook for its crimes.
4: We saw today a completely different report from Amnesty International which, unfortunately, tries to amnesty the terrorist state and shift the responsibility from the aggressor to the victim. There are no, and can be no, even hypothetically, conditions under which any Russian attack on Ukraine becomes justified.
0: President Zelensky also accused the group of practicing, in his words, quote, immoral selectivity. Russia is reportedly ready to discuss a potential prisoner swap now that a verdict has been reached in Brittany Griner's drug smuggling trial. Griner's lawyers say they will appeal the nine-year prison sentence a Russian judge handed down on Thursday. The WNBA star pleaded guilty to taking less than a gram of cannabis oil to Russia. And a lightning strike has killed two people near the White House in Washington, D.C. Medics say the victims were sheltering from a thunderstorm under a tree in Lafayette Park. Two other people were critically injured. There's no word on their current condition. OK, so to head as the U.S. declares monkeypox a public health emergency. The World Health Organization calls on Europe to do more. Its regional director joins us. And costly content. Warner Brothers Discovery say streaming is underpriced as it merges HBO Max and Discovery+. We have the latest on that report. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks remain on track for a lower open after the release of today's stunningly strong U.S. jobs numbers. The U.S. reporting within the past hour that 528,000 jobs were added to the economy last month, more than double expectations. The big question is whether today's numbers will put that to rest concern that the U.S. economy is headed for recession. The report surely represents a source of concern for the U.S. Federal Reserve, which wants to see a moderating pace of jobs growth to help ultimately bring down pricing pressures. U.S. profits are another source of economic strength. S&P 500 companies on average are reporting more than 12% sales growth and more than 8% profit growth this Q2 earnings season. The number of companies beating on the top and bottom lines have surpassed five-year averages as well. Julian Emanuel joins me. He's the Senior Managing Director at Evercore ISI. Julian, great to have you with us. I tell you what, this doesn't say anything for the economists and the analysts, whether we're talking about uh, predictions of uh, corporate earnings or jobs numbers.
4: Uh, this is this is a tough job in a bear market yes it's it's easier in a bull market but you know look this is actually the kind of dynamic that we have seen in different forms since the beginning of the pandemic the the issue here is that the economy globally is so unpredictable that you just get constantly these wide very variations in expectations You know, look, how do you possibly reconcile two consecutive negative GDP quarters with the employment report we just saw 45 minutes ago? It's
0: very challenging. Um, I'm glad it's your job and not mine. Does that mean that there's going to be revisions to those quarters and that we'll see a, a bump up in, in the numbers? Because I think it is it is very confusing for people to understand. Perhaps it's less confusing, at least in the short term, for the Federal Reserve, because they have a mission to bring prices down, they have to hike interest rates, and they will continue to do so. The idea that they could cut rates next year, which is what the market initially was pricing, to me just seems um, absurd based on these numbers.
5: It, it,
4: it. It, it, no question about it. Look, we've made very clear that our view is is that the one thing the Fed must avoid is a situation where, and this is sort of, you know, the, the rate hiking cycle has now become a bit more complex, although clearer, but there's this Goldilocks element to where you cannot hike so far that you precipitate the kind of recession, not that we have right now, but that the yield curve is telling you we could have in the back half of 2023 to the point where you would be tempted, as was the case in the 1970s, to cut rates into that kind of downturn without inflation having been subdued significantly enough. It's a very difficult task.
0: I I guess my other question here is just how tight policy is or isn't, quite frankly, because we're reducing the balance sheet and we're we're raising interest rates, but from incredibly low levels. And while we've got out of the psychology of seeing rate hikes and we've had easy money for as long as everyone can remember, given the last few years have just been so long, outrageously long in terms of what we've been through. um, Do we have to just get a grip and understand that these jumps are really big because the Fed has waited so late to, to hike rates, but it's okay. And, and perhaps the jobs market at least is telling us that.
4: The jobs market is, you know, it's one of those things where our view was, is that to a certain extent, good news would be good news. This is a bit too much good news for certainly the yield markets, which, you know, part of the reason 2022 has been as painful as it's been for equity investors is because after 25 years, bonds and stocks are now moving together. Yields go up, stocks go down, and that's sort of what's going on right now. But, but again, putting it all together, uh, look, th- there's an element that says, is that, is that particularly if you're a stock picker, the fact the Fed is starting to normalize policy from really multi-decade lows, and it's happening around the world, is very good for finding investment opportunities that have long-run differentiated potential. And ultimately, for us, the fact that free money goes away may be painful in the the present, but is likely long-run a very good thing. Mm.
0: Yeah, If we look at the the very short term, and I'm always hesitant to do this, I'm talking about literally the day's moves. What we're seeing, though, once again, to your point, is a market that's pricing in more hikes, not less. And that means bond prices come down and we're seeing stocks go down. So, for the average investor, where you have a lot of money in stocks and you have a lot of money in bonds, this is incredibly painful. It's actually been great for the past month because we've seen uh, bonds going up and we've seen stocks going up. Um, Unfortunate correlations, but it it, it works for the average investor. Um, And then before that, it was really uncomfortable. So, I guess, Julian, my question is, um, for those people that it works when things are going up. It's incredibly painful when it goes down. How do you invest? And for those that were hoping perhaps that we'd seen the bottom of the sell-off in stocks in particular, have we?
4: So so we think in all likelihood we have not seen the bottom uh, in stocks in this cycle. Now, what this does, this kind of environment makes you know, emotional challenge. You know, beyond what you see when you open your financial statement. As an investor, you need to be committed to the long-run case for stocks. And there is historical evidence that stocks can still advance in times of high inflation. You need it to crest, and we do think inflation is going to crest this year, but you can have it advancing. So, but the other aspect of it is psychology, right? If you look at the bull market that we've had since the financial crisis you have been rewarded to buy every pullback of 20 to 30 percent or or what have you this environment says you know be prepared to buy those pullbacks if you don't see yourself a buyer if we go through those june lows that means you own a little bit too much stock now and you should probably trim you need to be psychologically ready the other important thing here julia is that cash is not at all a liability. It is an asset, even with inflation where it is now. It enables you to be a buyer of those dips where you need to do that to really secure long-run investment
0: performance. Dry powder, I think it's called. Interesting point to make. What proportion, Julian? I mean, I know, as you said, it's difficult to gauge because it it's based on people's comfort levels, but what proportion of of the money that you perhaps have available to invest, however small, should be in cash at this moment in your mind?
4: Well, that really comes down to, you know, your age, your risk tolerance, your investment horizons. People's cash levels tend to be anywhere from, call it, zero to 10%. And our point of view here is, is that The number right now, particularly given the degree of the rally we've had the last month, is that number should be skewing towards the high end again in preparation to be deployed if stocks set back with the knowledge that even if we're wrong in our view that they won't set back over the next number of weeks, that your cash levels will actually fall if stocks continue to advance.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. Always great to have you on the show, Julian. Thank you so much for that, Julian Emmanuel, Senior Managing Director at Evercore ISI. Okay, now to a streaming switch and the boss of Warner Brothers Discovery says cinemas get the priority when it comes to new releases. David Zaslav made the comments in an earnings call where he announced massive losses and laid out plans to merge streaming services HBO Max with Discovery+. Plus. Just for context, Warner Brothers Discovery is the parent of CNN. Brian Stelter joins us now with all the details. Brian, I'm glad we've got you on this because there is a lot to talk about. This is a mixed quarter for me because it's part of the old business. It's a part of the new business. So it's always going to be a little bit messy. You're always going to see some element of kitchen sinking, I think, in these kind of quarters and the quarter following. But I think a lot of focus has gone on what the future for streaming is and also what what Zaslav had to say about where he sees it.
6: Yes, and Zaslav's main message was long-term thinking. As much as we talk about quarter by quarter, and Discovery is doing a lot quarter by quarter to try to trim the business, he was focused on the next three, five, even ten years. Zaslav announcing that that merger of HBO Max and Discovery Plus will begin to happen this time next year, summer of 2023, and it'll then roll out in various markets around the world. He talked about 2025 goals, and he talked about the future of DC films. Of course, the superhero collection of characters that would like to challenge Marvel more aggressively. He talked about a 10-year plan for DC Comics, for DC Films, for bringing some of those characters to life. And he talked a lot about trying to protect those assets and brands. I think a lot of what we're seeing right now, Julia, is a reversal of the prior administration. Jason Kylar, who was running Warner Media for at and who said it was all about streaming, who said we're going to take films out of theaters, put them only on streaming. Those were big, expensive bets that were made in 2020, and they're now being reversed by Zaslov.
0: Yeah, and he's saying look, we just don't see the economic case for that direct-to-streaming. So it is a a significant shift. And I think that statement was weighed actually very cleanly. But also talking about the prospect of reducing churn in terms of the number of of viewers and and break-even. Let's talk about the economics, actually, of making streaming work in an environment where there is increasing competition. And I think that's a reality check for everyone. We've seen that for other players. Netflix in particular in the past quarters,
6: two quarters in particular, too. Right. I think it's a really interesting argument that's being laid out by the new administration. And we will know in a couple of years whether it was the right argument or not. They're basically mm. saying this market is so competitive, putting a film in a movie theater first creates more value, creates more allure, makes it seem like a bigger deal because it was in a movie theater. Now, that has been the logic going back 10, 20 years in Hollywood. The pandemic changed a lot of those thoughts. And that's why Kylar in the previous administration said, we're going to skip theaters. We're going to go straight to HBO Max. We're going to show that HBO Max is the future of entertainment now basically, Zaslav's trying to have an all-of-the-above model, and that also reflects the changes in media company valuations, the decline of stocks, including Netflix, Warner Bros. Discovery, and Disney. These media stocks are way down. Investors are much more skittish about streaming than they were six months ago, so that's partly why is presenting much more of an all-of-the-above strategy. We're going to be in theaters. We're going to be on cable and satellite. We're going to be in streaming. We're going to be in everywhere. However, Warner Bros. Discovery stock did fall quite a bit in pre-market trading, uh, uh, rather in after-hours trading yesterday, uh, when he was Is presenting so far. There's still a lot of skepticism about the future of these stocks.
0: Absolutely. And on that note, let's talk about pay, Brian. Let's talk about our boss's pay. Just to be clear to our audience again, uh, the uh, ownership structure of CNN: 246 million dollars in 2021, and that was a jump from 2020, 37.7 million dollars. It's a lot of money, and it's a huge project, a challenge, I think, going forward, a super tank. It is.
6: I've covered Zaslav for many years. He is one of the highest-paid CEOs in America. The argument goes like this. His mentor, John Malone, pays his CEOs incredibly well, mostly through stock, through options that only uh, become available if you get the stock price up and up and up. And that's been the idea behind Discovery and Zaslav's pay for years. Relatively low base salary, huge opportunities in terms of hundreds of millions of dollars for stock. Uh, You can see why Malone thinks it makes sense, However, some of those laid off HBO executives, uh, it bothers them quite a bit when they read about these inflated salaries, not just at Discovery, by the way, but also across the media sector. Uh, It is one of those tension points that always exists in the media world.
0: Yeah. Huge upside in uh, the share price incentive effect to do better and to boost that share price up. But as you said, this is not a one uh, corporate story. This is across the sector and there are questions being asked. Brian, great to have you with us as always. Brian Stelter, there. All right, coming up. Monkeypox multiplying. The United States following the WHO in declaring a public health emergency, the global response to the outbreak, and what more is required next. Welcome back to First Move. And as expected, U.S. stocks are firmly lower in early trade after today's blowout U.S. jobs report pretty much wiping out any chance of a Federal Reserve policy pivot any time soon. As we've been discussing, the bottom line, interest rates likely to stay higher for longer. And that, of course, not good for Wall Street. The U.S. reporting a much greater than expected 528,000 jobs added net Last month, more than double expectations. The U.S. unemployment rate also falling to pre-pandemic levels too. However, lots of other news and important news that investors are following this Friday as well, including a breakthrough for U.S. President Biden's more than $700 billion economic plan, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Senator Christian Sinema offering critical support for the bill after party leaders agreed to change some of the legislation's tax-raising provisions. The bill allocates more than $400 billion to programs that help ease prescription drug costs and climate change. Fears of a deep freeze in relations between the U.S. and China, the two largest global economies could represent new headwinds for markets, China announcing after the Asian close that it will cut cooperation with the United States on climate change and limit military cooperation too as part of its condemnation of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Now in other news, as monkeypox continues to spread around the world, the United States has declared the disease a public health emergency. White House COVID-19 response coordinator Dr. Ashish Shah explaining the Biden administration's effort to tackle the outbreak.
4: We have 1.6 million people. There's no uh, reason to think that 100% of everybody will want the vaccine, but we are going to try to target, making sure there's enough vaccines for everyone. At 1.6 million people in the high-risk group, we've got 1.1 million doses already allocated uh, to states. They can order it. About 600,000 have gone out. States are going to be able to get more this month. We've got another about 200,000 doses coming in September, another about 500,000 doses coming in October.
0: There are more than 7,000 confirmed cases in America. That's more than any other country. But It comes after the World Health Organization issued its highest alert over the outbreak last month. Globally, nearly 27,000 monkey box cases have been reported across 88 countries, and Europe remains the region with the most infections. Joining us now is Dr. Hans Kluger. He's regional director of the World Health Organization in Europe. Dr. Kluger, fantastic to have you with us. My pleasure. We've seen the United States now declare this a public health emergency, but as you look at the infection rate that we're seeing, perhaps the lack of cases that we we don't know we've got at this stage, has the response been swift? Enough and aggressive enough in your mind?
7: Well, I think that several lessons from the COVID 19 have been taken into account. So it's very important that there was a public health emergency of international concern. I would like to commend the United States government for having it now as a national emergency because what does it allow? It's a call to action and it allows to target resources to contain the outbreak. And that's the main aim that I'm here to for this transatlantic cooperation because we see that a crisis anywhere can become a crisis everywhere if unattended an and both regions, just like COVID-19, are the epicenter in the world.
0: Can I ask about, and I mentioned it in my introduction, for all the cases we know about, do you have an estimate even if it's a guesstimate, of of how many cases that we don't know about? What kind of proportion? Because this is also a lesson that we learned from the COVID-19 pandemic, that that for every case we know about, there can be multiple that we don't.
7: Absolutely. Speaking about the pan-European region, we have about 17,000 cases now. This is clearly the bulk globally, but we call it the tip of the iceberg. So two key issues here, to limit de-infection number one is to sensibilize the high-risk groups and in the European region like globally it's mainly in the group men having sex with men with multiple partners very important to avoid stigma and discrimination because otherwise people are going to go underground and will even have a lesser ID of the total number and number two is to target the vaccines and the treatments to those high-risk groups.
0: Do you have a sense of, of a baseline level of how many people you, that you think will get infected in the same way that we heard there from uh, the White House's coordinator on COVID-19? They said that the high risk group is 1.6 million people in the United States. They have 1.1 million vaccines available today. Do you have any kind of estimates for, for Europe, even if it's just the, the, the high risk, the proportion of people that are high risk?
7: Well, it's a specific uh, target group, but it does not depend on sexual orientation because what we're seeing now is also cases in children in women as well. So basically everyone is vulnerable. But a key issue, I think the biggest thing to tackle is the stigma and discrimination. And we should remember after all that the transmission is not so easy. It requires close contact, skin to skin, mouth to mouth. So in that sense, the calling of an emergency is very timely because what we don't want, for example, is to have a reservoir in animals, in rodents, which then can really sustain the monkeypox outbreaks in the future.
0: Dr Kluge, I think you said something incredibly important there about the stigma attached to monkeypox at this moment. And I think so far the message has been targeted to specific communities and specifically men who have sexual intercourse with with other men and the message has been that they need to limit those sexual partners to try and avoid infection or, or spreading the infection. Are you saying actually that that's now the wrong message and that everyone needs to be careful, particularly if we're seeing children be infected? And who should be vaccinated and how do people best protect themselves, whoever they are?
7: On the vaccination, an important point here is that vaccines alone are not going to stop the outbreak. It's either what we call pre-exposure or post-exposure and it takes about two weeks to build up the immunity so it's a very important tool but not a panacea. The key issue frankly speaking is the oldest public health tool that we have and Portugal in my region has shown that you can have a decrease of the cases even in absence of wide vaccination by sensibilizing the high risk groups and for this we need to empower trusted messengers and fight fake news and disinformation, which is a lesson we learned from the COVID-19.
0: Yes. So everybody needs to be careful here and be prepared and be aware. And it's not just specific communities that that should be targeted, because to your point, that does raise um, the stigma attached to this. And I think we've unfortunately established that today already. Um, I want to move on and talk about COVID because I... I know you're also raising the flag about an increase in, in cases, particularly as we head into the, to the winter months, and we're already seeing rising cases. And again, many we're not capturing because people, I think, are tired of testing. How important is it to time the message from, from governments and the response from individuals? Because I do feel there's a window where you can say to people, look, you need to wear masks again, you need to be more careful. But, but people are exhausted. And if we want to get this right, the timing on what we ask people to do has to be very targeted
7: would you agree absolutely basically what we see in the european region and also globally is that people stabilize their lives but without stabilizing the pandemic the virus has never gone away it's still there it keeps changing and it's still taking unnecessary many lives so the key issue here i would say is surveillance because information data is power several countries are weakening their testing strategies they do not make a difference between reporting people going to the hospital due to COVID or with COVID we developed in Europe five pandemic stabilizers number one is a full vaccination number two is the second booster for high-risk groups basically if you haven't had your shots this year you should consider yourself vulnerable number three is ventilation. Far not enough attention has been given to ventilation in classes, in office buildings. We don't want to close the schools again. Number four, if need be, in confined, crowded places to consider masks, even now I am wearing the mask. It's not because it's not obligatory that you should not consider it. And number five is to scale up equal access to the new antivirals to avoid people getting onto the ventilator.
0: Yeah, good messages, sir. Great to have you with us and um, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Hans Kluger there, the Regional Director of the WHO Europe. So thank you. Okay, coming up, flexible solutions to finding work. The CEO of InstaWork with insights into the jobs market on a key wow day for the US job growth in America. That's next. OK, welcome back to First Move. Let's get back to those blowout jobs numbers for July. In the United States, leisure and hospitality added 96,000 jobs net. That's of particular relevance to InstaWork, which matches more than 3 million hourly workers to open positions across the United States and Canada. Hospitality is a key sector for the business, along with vacancies in warehousing and logistics. To discuss how it all works, Samir Magani, he's InstaWork CEO and co- and co-founder, Samir, fantastic to have you on the show. It's like a dating match app, actually, for, for matching hourly workers with opportunities out there for firms that need their required skills. Just explain who's using the app and, and how it all works.
5: Well, good morning and thanks for having me. Yeah, InstaWork is the leading flexible work app. We connect thousands of businesses, sports stadiums, retailers, um, e-commerce companies with millions of qualified you know, professionals. And, and right now, we think we're filling a very critical need in, in, in the local economy. Uh, it's, it's literally as easy as you know pros who are workers, they download the mobile app, they create a profile, tell us their skills, um, when they're available, and then they'll get notifications as jobs open up. You know, a job on in could be as short as six to eight hours on, on one day or, or several days or several weeks. Um, the, the one unifying theme on in is flexibility, which is you know our pros have complete control over where and, and when they want to work.
0: I think it's also important for our viewers to understand the, the scale of the opportunity here, because we, we often talk about the post-pandemic work environment. We talk about people working from home or Zooming in or doing that kind of activity. But for what, around 100 million workers, you have to be present for a job in the United States. And we're talking about 1.8 vacancies equivalent for every person actually looking for a job. That matching... And provision of flexibility is crucial in this labor market at this point in time.
5: Absolutely. And, 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 it, and it's funny, Julia, you know, we're we're a, we're a tech company and a lot of companies right now, including InstaWork, are trying to figure out, you know, do people want to work from the beach or do they want to, you know, do they want to travel and, and, and take their laptop with them? And as you mentioned, you know, if you're a bartender, or a forklift driver. Um, you don't have that choice, but but what we're hearing from our pros is they're demanding flexibility in other forms, the ability to navigate, you know, their work schedule, you know, around around their family, right, or to be able to travel and, and work jobs in different cities, uh, and to give you a sense of, of of the data we're seeing, you know, we were at about a million pros signed up for Instawork last March in 21. Um, this March in, in 2022, we were at two million, and just five months later, just just now, we've hit three million um, pros and. And, and so our, our pros are speaking with their their swipes, you know, they're downloading, you know, the app and signing up. And I know you covered the jobs report earlier. You know, we're at record low unemployment, three and a half percent. So you know, these workers have many choices on where they're going to spend their time. The fact that they're they're choosing, despite a hot tight labor market, to be on Instawork, you know, is a sign that that flexibility is the new norm for all workers, right? Not just not just digital workers, but for everyone.
0: So how, how does it work in terms of a business comes to you and says, look, this is what I'm looking for. These are the skills requirements. You have loads of people that upload their skill set. How do you vet them? How do you ensure and how do you manage the feedback? What proportion of people that sign up for a job, perhaps the, the business comes back and says, actually, this person was not that great and they didn't arrive and they didn't do this. And then what do you do with that person? Do you give them a second chance? How does vetting quality of work and employer, let's be clear, work on the platform.
5: Yeah, and you highlighted something really interesting is that there's sort of vetting on both sides. And <sighs> right. for the first time, you know, hourly hourly workers, you know, they have a choice on where they want to work, but they they also have a voice. They're able to rate the employers, just like the businesses on Instawork are able to to rate workers. But to your question about vetting, you know, all of our professionals have to they download the mobile app and they go through a multi-step process. They upload pictures of the relevant work attire um, any certifications they have that might be required for specific positions, for example, a bartending card or a forklift certificate, they have to upload their their work experience, right? So they're building a, a profile of record on Instawork, which is uh, part of our long-term you know strategy. And and only about 10 to 15 percent of people who tried to sign up are actually approved uh, to get on uh, because it is a pretty rigorous you know sign-up process. And then after that, you know, it's a two-way rating system. And the benefit for businesses is that, is that the more ratings they give us, you know, our, our technology and our, our platform will, ma- will, will help get their shifts in front of the right people who we think you know are a good fit. Uh, and then on, on Instawork, there's, a, there's an incentive for our pros to do their best work. Uh, you know, our average wages on Instawork are $19 an hour. You know, our pros make, on average, nearly double their state's minimum wage, so they get high pay and they get instant pay. And so within 20, 30 minutes of when they clock out of a shift that money is on their debit card and in their bank account and so the the, the better you do on in store the higher ratings you get um, it's a meritocracy you're able to earn more right uh, get 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 paid quickly you're able to upskill and uh, and combined with the flexibility it's a really really compelling uh, value proposition for the three million pros we have
0: yeah and we should make the point that in, in many of these places the average wage is higher than that that minimum wage it's just they've never well they've not changed the the, the rules on the level of it for you know, years and years and years because Congress can't get its act together. But your point is that they earn more than perhaps they would out there if they were um, acting alone and not through this app. Um, one of the other things I like to the flexibility is that people can sign up for different jobs. So you were saying that a person can be a bartender one day and a forklift truck operator the next day. So it's also the variety, depending on circumstances and what you're available to do and where, I think, that, that also is fascinating. Um, how do you make money? Do you, do you charge the employer when they manage to, to hire people? And um are you making money? I know you're in growth phase and you're scaling up, but um, talk to us about some of the economics for you too. Yeah, the businesses
5: uh, pay us a fee when there's a successful match. So right. if someone shows up and they do a great job, that's only when they pay. And so our, our, our business is aligned with, you know, with, with the successful outcome for both you know, the partners and the pros. Our, our pros don't have to pay anything. That instant pay feature I mentioned earlier is completely free. So all they have to do is, is, is have the skill and the will to work, and they're able to make you know, really high income and, and get that flexible pay, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and we're growing quickly. As, as you mentioned, you know, we're a growth stage company. We've got some amazing investors. Um, it's been important for us to have you know, great sort of fundamental unit economics you know, to make sure that our marketplace is balanced. You know, businesses are paying rates uh, when there's a match that, that are reasonable and commiserate with, with what they normally pay. And and our pros are making, you know, far more than they might be able to make on their own. Uh, And so we think that's a great thing for the economy.
0: Yeah. And I like your point about the aligned incentives that you only get paid when the worker does a good job, not just because you match them with an employer and and then your job's done. So you're incentivized to have the right people and and to make it work which makes sense, but it's nice to see you getting paid on that fact, too. Sameer, great to have you with us. Keep us posted. Uh, I want to talk expansion plans as well, because I think uh, other countries could use you, too. Um, We'll talk again soon. Sameer Moghani. Yeah, we we just launched
5: Canada. We announced Canada. Yeah, I
0: know. I know. And onwards. (laughs) Great to chat to you. Sameer Moghani, CEO and co-founder of InstaWork. Thank you. you. All right. After the break, a brewing crisis. The UK faces pricier pints for beer as the cost of grain continues to rise. Welcome back. The Great British Beer Festival is back after a long pandemic pause. Though troubles may be in store for the ale industry, war in Ukraine is jeopardizing its most important ingredient, and that, of course, is grain. CNN's Issa Suarez reports.
8: After a two-year hiatus, the Great British Beer Festival is back. And there's plenty to celebrate with nearly a thousand car scales, craft beers and ciders under one roof. It's a welcome return for an industry that has seen restaurants close and bars struggling to stay open. We haven't
4: seen each other socially for quite a long time. So it's just a great place to come, have a few beers and and chew the fat.
8: But trouble is brewing as the UK, like many countries, faces the knock-on effect of Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
7: Brewing is is a high-intensity production process. You need to boil uh, your water, your your malts and barleys together and and mix them all together at high temperatures. So you do need um, a lot of energy to do that. And that's pushing up their costs very highly. There's other factors like fuel costs, delivery costs, the crisis we've got in in the Ukraine, and that's affecting grain prices.
8: And it's not just grain. Russia's invasion has also caused energy prices to spike, rising 70% from June of 2021 to June of this year.
4: Everything is being affected. And if I'm honest, I don't think we're really feeling the squeeze of that yet. I think the squeeze of that really is to come in the next 12 to 18 months. It's uh,
8: 5.20... But the reality of these costs has left a bitter taste in some people's mouths, with more than 50% of the British public saying the average price of a pint, now around five US dollars, is unaffordable. But as I wandered through the halls of this festival, it's clear the first for beer is not going anywhere. So how does it feel to be back after three years of COVID?
7: Absolutely brilliant, loving every minute of it. And great to see everyone under the same roof again, enjoying great ale. And while the outlook may
8: look cloudy, for now these brewers clearly still have a glass half full.
0: Cheers,
8: thanks very much, cheers. Isa Suarez, CNN, London. Tough gig,
0: that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you Monday.